Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have Dr. Carrie McGinn. She's a holistic physical therapist and yoga teacher, a healer and mind-body coach, the owner of Live Good, Feel Good, a performance and recovery center that caters to people who live with chronic pain, chronic illness, and chronic stress. She helps women feel safe and at home in their bodies through movement, mother nature, and mindfulness. In this episode, we talk about fascia, pain, and nourishing your nervous system. So if you have aches and pains or stress of any kind, this is the episode for you. Please enjoy. Before we head into today's episode, I'm excited to share some details with you from today's sponsor, Dr. Stephen Cabral, board-certified doctor of naturopathy and author of The Rain Bale Effect, whom I've had on the show in the past. He has a really incredible offer for listeners today that will help you hit the whole body reset button and get guaranteed results or your money back. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Are you tired of trying fad diets and juice cleanses only to be disappointed by the outcome? The way to finally lose weight and get well is by removing the underlying root cause holding you back. Your liver filters all all the blood in your body every six minutes, but with the influx of toxins in our environment, our livers cannot keep up and our bodies have no choice but to store these toxins in our fat cells, organs, even our brain, so they're not floating around in the blood system. Over time, this toxin buildup begins to cause symptoms of poor health. The Dr. Cabral Detox is a comprehensive full-body functional medicine detoxification system that gently eliminates harmful toxins while rebalancing the body at an underlying root cause level. Benefits of the 21-day detox include decreased bloating and puffiness, lose weight, speed up metabolism, rebalance your hormones, reset healthy inflammation levels, get clear skin, enjoy healthy blood sugar levels, increase energy, improve sleep, strengthen your digestion. This detox has been proven to work for tens of thousands of people just like you. As a limited time offer, Dr. Cabral is providing $100 off a 21-day detox or $20 off a 7-day detox. Head on over to stephencabral.com slash cat, K-A-T, to reserve your detox today. Welcome to the Kat Katibi Podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So before we begin, tell us a little bit about your journey, your education, and how you approach helping your clients. 100%. I always joke that my journey has been a series of unfortunate events, but in the most beautiful way possible. So my journey really started when I was 16. I tore my ACL. I was a big athlete and I wanted to go play college lacrosse. That was my lifelong dream. And this kind of just took the wind out of my sails. But it was through that process that I learned a lot. I think I had my first struggle with mental health and just in general. And I had an amazing physical therapist that really inspired me. So from there, I had it in my head that I wanted to be a physical therapist. I then went on to play college lacrosse. I didn't go right away to get my physical therapy degree. I decided to go to a four-year school instead. And once again, at the time, I was scared to make that decision, but it was exactly what needed to happen. I went through a lot of different things in college, playing lacrosse. I was sick for four months my junior year in and out of the hospital, uh, dealing with post-traumatic post-strep is what it's called. Weird. Didn't really have a diagnosis at the time. And I was really sick for a while. And I learned a lot through that process as well. The following year, I was present at the Boston Marathon bombing and dealt with a lot of PTSD and anxiety after that. So just a lot of these little and big events kind of unfolded for me as I went through my early 20s. I then took off some time and became a yoga teacher and then went back to physical therapy school about uh, two years after that. So all of those small things really created the path that led me to where I am here today. So I entered physical therapy school a way different person than I expected to when I first started applying and first started dreaming of this career. But it really helped me become a better healthcare practitioner and helped me understand what people really needed, especially people who are in pain. I then went on to deal with my own chronic pain journey as well as get severely burnt out at my first job out of PT school, which then taught me even more. And that kind of brings me to here today. I dealt with chronic gut health issues, chronic pain, a lot of chronic tension for 
many years. It does crop up every now and then now, but I've learned so much over the past, I want to say 10 years about how to manage it different ways, not just our traditional physical therapy ways, but a little bit more of a holistic approach. And that's really brought me kind of full circle to where I am now owning my own holistic physical therapy business and helping people who've gone through things similar to I have. So I wanted to start off the questions on fascia. So I'm fascinated by it. I'm kind of into it right now because I'm learning about like um, massage and all that stuff like that just for myself because I have like some pains I need to deal with. So what is the role um, of fascia and chronic pain? And before we get into that, what is fascia? Great questions. I am also currently obsessed with fascia and probably will be for a while. But fascia, it's so funny because even when I was in PT school, which wasn't that long ago, it was about five years ago, we dissected a human cadaver and we would just throw away the fascia. It, we didn't even study it. It just it, We just moved through it. And that's how it was for a while, fascia. It was there, but no one really paid attention to it. And in the recent years, it's been studied more and more and more. And it's really fascinating. It's a connective tissue. So your muscles, your ligaments, your tendons are all connective tissues. So it's another type of connective tissue, but it runs throughout your entire body. One of my mentors says, she's like, it really quite literally holds you up. If you didn't have fascia, you would just be like a blob of like bones and muscles on the floor. So it gives us our structure and it's continuous. It's wrapped around every muscle. So it's really a part of our whole body. And the fascia is what, you know, some people might have this experience. Like it's always my left shoulder, my right hip that's bothering me. Or like when I stretch out my hamstrings, my low back feels better. Fascia is really what's connecting our whole body and creating some of those patterns or those sensations we're feeling. Fascia is also really interesting because it has a lot of receptors in it, sensory receptors and pain receptors in it. So a lot of time our pain is actually coming from our fascia, not our muscles and our ligaments and joints. Not always, obviously. There's always, you know, a, a difference there. But a lot of times our day-to-day pains, especially in our modern world, the way our modern world's set up with a lot of sitting and a lot of inflammation, our fascia is what's causing a lot of the pain. And there's a lot of nerves that go into the fascia, and nerves are really what's part of causing that causing that pain sensation as part of that signaling. So the fascia is a really important part, not only of you know, our structure holding us up, but also pain management because it has so many receptors and nerves in it. And a lot of times when people come into me, their fascia just isn't moving well. And part of it, like I kind of mentioned already, is our, our modern society is not built for us to move a lot. A lot of people, I'm sure listening to this, will sit at their desk for multiple hours a day. And that causes the high, the fascia to dehydrate, to kind of constrict and to stop moving. I always joke that if you've ever been really dehydrated or feel really dehydrated and you kind of, your skin almost feels like it's like stuck. Everything feels like it's stuck together. That's a fascia sensation. So it plays a huge role in chronic pain and chronic tension, especially in some of those, I call them like trouble spots, like upper traps, lower back, backs of the legs, things like that. You mentioned a little bit about how lifestyle can affect your fascia. Is there anything else that maybe you didn't mention that contributes to maybe pain caused by the fascia? Definitely. So hydration is actually probably the number one thing, staying hydrated with good quality water and just water in general. Movement is number two. I always say a little bit goes a long way in terms of that. I'm not telling everyone to you know go on an hour run three times a day, little movements throughout your day, getting up, and stretching, going, moving around, you know, uh, getting a glass of water, just getting moving throughout the day. And then the other really big piece that I love is rolling out with, I use yoga tune-up balls. That's just the brand that I really love, but I've done a lot of uh, work with rolling out with different balls. And I actually like them better than foam rollers, if I'm being completely honest, because they have a better texture so that you get that grippy feeling with the fascia, which is super important. They're portable and you can kind of use them on all sorts of little spaces. And if you're in a small office, you can also use them in small spaces. So I really recommend people do some sort of rolling out or self-massage technique 
as often as possible because it's really going to help the fascia feel healthy. I don't know if this is related to fascia, but let me know. I'm very tight. So like mm-hmm. I can't bend over. I can't like, do a split. I could never even get close my entire life. Is that a tight fascia problem or is that the muscles or something? That it really depends, honestly. And I know that's kind of one of the more annoying answers, but it really depends because everyone is slightly different. One thing I find super interesting about fascia is there are some of us that naturally have more elastin in our tissues and our fascia. And elastin is what makes us like stretchy and kind of like able to really, you know, those people that can like drop into a split and not having practiced it, they have a lot of elastin. And then a lot, some other people have a lot of collagen in their tissues. Sounds like you're one of them. I'm definitely one of them. I joke, I'm a t- yoga teacher, but I joke that I, I'm not a yoga teacher because I'm flexible. Like if I didn't practice yoga, I would just be like the tin man walking around. <laughs> so fascia does play a role in that too. But at the end of the day, it also is comes down to bone structure as well because everyone's bone structure is slightly different. And therefore the way we move, some of us might never be able to get into splits or other of those crazy kind of poses. Or I think even in yoga, there's um, malasana, that kind of deep squat where your butt kind of goes down to your heels. Some people will never fully get into that position and some people naturally just drop into it. So it is a combination of fascia and bone structure for sure. Yeah, I wonder about that because maybe because I'm very short or something like that, that I couldn't <laughs> do it my whole life. But <laughs> Yeah, everybody always tells me you're so tight. And I'm like, is this bad? (laughs) I'm not doing it on purpose, I promise. (laughs) So what is the link between stress, emotional stress, and fascia health? So it's very interesting the way our body responds to stress because we do need stress to learn and grow and evolve. But too much stress is really detrimental to us. And I say you can feel it in your whole body personally, and maybe I'm just a little over in tune after everything I've been through. But when my stress upticks, I can feel it kind of in all different systems, my nervous system, my fascia, my lymphatic system, I might be a little hyper alert. But the way that stress affects our body is first, it goes into our nervous system, our nervous system, I I call her the queen, she's in charge of everything she wants to make us make us alive. And that's it. She doesn't care if we're like happy or pretty or successful. She just, you're alive. That's, she's completed her task. So when the queen, the nervous system's under threat, it will send signals out to the body to do things to protect you. One of those signals can be signaling to the muscles and the fascia to tighten up and to prepare for fight or flight or freezing. And fight, flight, or freeze are kind of how our body their states in which our body handles stress. So in, you know, ancient times, our ancestors, when there were nomads, it was fighting the animals, you know, fighting a lion, running for a lion or playing dead. In our modern world, that kind of looks like still running away, freezing or fighting, whether that be with words or whatnot. So what those signals from the brain and the nervous system are telling the fascia are stiffen up, tighten to prepare to fight, flight, or freeze. So a lot of times when we're under stress, we feel just naturally like we're holding so much tension in our jaw and our, you'll see often like people shrugging their shoulders or in the front of their hips because think about it. If you were to really physically fight someone, not suggesting anyone does, but if you were, you would tense up your shoulders, you would get your legs ready to move and kind of brace your core for impact. So that's what the the nervous system is sending to not just the fascia, but the muscles and the nerves in the body. Okay. So that makes sense. So quick story. <laughs> a couple days ago, we got into a fight with our neighbor and he over a parking spot pushed my husband and I went crazy. I was like, how dare – because I'm very protective of him. He's so Mm -hmm. cute. So nobody can do that. I got like very, very angry and I have been so angry since then. Every time I look by his house and the other neighbor's like, it's okay. He's got a mental problem. Just let it go. And I'm like, okay, fine. I will let it go. But it's hard to physically let it Mm -hmm. go. And I have been twitching on my shoulders. And I'm just like, what the heck? How do I stop this? And it's really ironic because the last couple episodes, people have wanted to talk about stress. <laughs> and I'm just like, is somebody trying to tell me something? <laughs> I need to calm down. So let's say 
the stressful event has happened and now you're tight. Mm -hmm. What can you do? I love that question because I think a lot of people find themselves in that situation. So one thing, and I can't remember who told me this, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not mine, but someone said you have to feel it to heal it. Or in other words, you have to move through an emotion sometimes to to kind of expel it from your body. So obviously that doesn't mean going and getting in a fight with your neighbor or or something like that. It can be other things, but you know, for my personal experience, actually, I for a while when I was going through a really stressful period of life, I love working out, but I needed a, a bigger outlet because I felt like I was holding on to tension. So I honestly started boxing because it was the act of like getting that aggression out on obviously not what was in my head, but the the bag in front of me. It was so therapeutic. So a lot of times in our just modern world, I think especially as women, we're taught or we're told to like calm down, like don't be so mad, you know, like you're being over dramatic. So we we shove some of our feelings down, whether that be anger or just stress or anxiety or worry, instead of fully feeling them. And that's what our body like. They, we get those twitches, we get that tension because we're 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 not allowing ourselves the full emotional experience of what anger or what you know grief even would be sometimes. So sometimes we have to allow ourselves in a safe container to work through those feelings. So that can, it it looks different for everyone. That can look like going for a really hard run. That could look like screaming into a pillow. That can look like going boxing. Uh, What have I done in the past? Oh, I totally once like threw rocks at a rock pile. That was really satisfying. But Obviously, something that's not going to put yourself in danger or someone else is in danger, but a way that you can really fully feel your feelings and then release them because you really do have to move through them sometimes. Okay. So that's the opposite of what I've been doing because they're just like, (laughs) do meditation. I'm like, all I think about is I want to punch him. That's not helping me. (laughs) Right. So in terms of that also, sometimes – Breath work that's like stimulating will really help, like breath of fire or other sorts of breath work that really are like deep inhales and extensive exhales. If you're not going looking to throw things around, that's another great way. Not that I love meditation and I highly recommend it to a lot of people, but when you're in that active, what's called kind of, it's called sympathetic overdrive or sympathetic state, sometimes we need another stimulus that isn't just sitting still. Because sometimes if our brain's all the way up here, our body and our body's all the way kind of vibrating at this really high level, meditation's great at all, but we might need something else until we are able to drop into that meditative spot. Okay. So I like that. So I'm going to try a rage room and see if that helps. Love, love that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so can we switch to a little bit about aesthetics for a minute? Mm-hmm. So what part does cellulite in particular have to do with fascia? Does it have anything to do with it? Because, okay, I have seen people say lose weight and I'm like, I have very thin friends with a lot of cellulite and then I have other friends that have, they're more heavy or even like myself, like my butt's huge and like I don't have as much cellulite. So I'm wondering, is that the fascia? Genetic. I think it's a little bit of both. I'll be honest. I'm not as super well-versed in this, but from a very scientific, honestly, just because I normally don't get people when they're at that point. I normally get them where they're like, I'm in pain. But for that purpose, there is a role that fascia plays, but there is also a genetics role for sure. Because like you said, it's not just a lot of people want to blame it on like, oh, I gained weight and now I have cellulite. But it does come down to what is the tissue underneath the skin. So some of that we just don't have control over. And there can be, you know, even if you have really strong muscular legs, you can still get cellulite. So it is a kind of a crinkling of the tissue. And I'll be completely honest, I'm I'm racking my brain here. I don't even know if there's a ton of research on this, but I do know that the way that the tissues work. It is, it's an underlying, I'm using my hands here, obviously, but it's the the skin and then you have the fascia and then you have the tissues. So fascia does play a role to what extent I'll be honest, I'm not positive, but there is a connection there with the, the collagen and the tissue that's underneath the skin for sure. And what are your thoughts on the popular fascia massage tools? Do they do more harm than good? Are they safe? Should we use them? And if so, how? Right. 
there's so many on the market now, they're really hot. So yes, a lot of them are good, not all of them. I'll tell you my least favorite one that's out there. Have you seen the ads for the one that's like, literally it just looks like a U-shaped hook that you're supposed to like dive into your hip flexors, like the front of your hips and like just lay over and torture yourself. That's a big ad that's going around. That one is not good. I Every time I see someone do that, especially women, I'm like, I feel like you're trying to like poke out your ovaries or something. You're just going in so deep there. So I mentioned previously, and I am a little biased because I have a lot of training with them and I use them on a daily basis, but yoga tune-up balls are my number one recommendation for any fascia-related work. They come in four different sizes. And what they do, what they do that's great is they have a little bit of give to them. So a lacrosse ball, a tennis ball, a golf ball, they're really solid. So there's no give to them. Our as much as our body wants to be massaged and get these tools on them, it does feel really good. Your tissue is still soft tissue, even if it feels tense. So if you put a really hard tissue into a really soft tissue, it's going to cause the soft tissue to tighten up. And that's going to be counterproductive to what you're doing. This can happen sometimes with foam rollers. Even I remember, oh my gosh, back in college, I did like PVC pipes I used to roll out with. And that's just was torturous, but yoga tuna balls, some foam rollers that are a little softer. I do like a big question I get is the Theraguns. Do people, do you use those? I do use them sometimes. They're not my number one go-to tool. I like them better for the vibration because they do kind of get just things moving and they get a different sensory experience, which is super important for pain. But overall, I think you have to be really careful with what tools you're using. If at any point you're holding your breath with any tool, even the yoga tune-up balls. If you're holding your breath, if you're kind of gripping, if you're doing one of these, like squeezing your eyes and clenching your jaw, if you can't talk while you're doing it, then you're doing way too much and it's not going to be good for your body. So it really comes to your experience while you're doing it and being really mindful of what you're doing here. What are some other ways that you can take care of your fascias or anything you can do with your diet or any other routine? In general, hydrating foods and things like that are super helpful, whether that be just hydrating with water or just hydrating foods. Also, as much as you can keep your inflammation down, the better, because inflammation does play a huge role in how our body moves and how things are kind of going through our body. And inflammation in general is going to cause more stress on your system. And when there's more stress on your system, as we spoke about earlier, your nervous system is going to send out signals that we need to tighten up things. So inflammation and hydration are usually my two number two, one and two, I should say, things for fascia health. And is there any connection between tight fascia and lymphatic issues? Definitely. So your lymphatic system is your detox system. It runs throughout your whole body and the fascia runs throughout your whole body. So common areas of tightness for a lot of people are hips, right? Front of the hips, kind of shoulder, clavicle, upper trap area, and even kind of sometimes like chest, armpit area. Those are also always, those not always, those are really big places where the lymphatic system, the lymph nodes are. And when the fascia is tight, it can definitely press on the lymphatic system and impede the flow. So 100%, if your fascia is tight, your lymphatic system is not going to be moving as well as it can. On top of that, your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. You know, our blood pumps through our body via your heart. The lymphatic system doesn't have a heart to it. It doesn't have a pump. So the lymphatic system moves through your body by muscle contraction. So if the muscles are really tight or the fascia is really tight and your muscles aren't functioning 100%, then you're going to lymphatic flow isn't going to be as strong or as steady as we want it to be for kind of the proper function. I have a blog post that I've had for years up and it's the most popular blog post I've ever done. It's all about scar tissue breakdown. Like mm. let's say after C-sections or even like liposuction or any sort of surgeries, some people just get thick scar tissue and it's this huge issue. It can cause pain and tightening and all that stuff. What does that have to do with the fascia and is there anything you can do to help break down scar tissue? Definitely. So there's a lot of, I'll be honest, it's a little controversial sometimes when talking about scar tissue. Some people are like, it doesn't matter. Some people are like, it does. 
I fall in the camp of it does matter to what extent it depends on the person. But essentially what scar tissue is, it's when tissue in your body that's being rebuilt after an injury or a surgical cut, but it's being laid down kind of haphazardly. And it's not, you know, the way our body builds its structures, it's very organized, but scar tissue is almost like unorganized structures. Like if you had a kind of wobbly foundation on a building. So the big complaints for scar tissue or scar or adhesions sometimes they're called is it, it prevents good mobility or it prevents the way your body moves. And a lot of times you get more scar tissue when it's more of a traumatic experience as well, whether that be a C-section or an injury or even a surgery. And a lot of times you get scar tissue too, when you completely isolate the area and don't move it at all, which a lot of times you're told to after, say, a surgery. So what it comes down to is we want scar tissue to a certain extent because we want to close that incision. Say I'm using surgery as an example, but scar tissue can build up for other reasons. You know, we want to close up that that incision so that, you know, we don't have any holes in our body, but we don't want excess scar tissue or excess adhesions to kind of build up there because that's going to limit severely limit our mobility. So from a physical therapy standpoint, what I always do is early mobility after whatever surgery or injury it is. And that's not crazy mobility. That's just gently moving the body around as much as you can without pain. And then once the scar, say, say you have a big scar, is fully healed, really gentle kind of massage around it. This is not saying like throw your elbow there and like move things around. This is like move the skin around. A technique that I love, it's called skin rolling. You essentially kind of pick up your skin and roll it through your fingers. That's a really great way to work with scar tissue. And then on top of that, sometimes if it's built up over time, I will, I'm certified in dry needling or I've um, done acupuncture before. Dry needling or acupuncture can really help with that. And then rolling out can help as well. But the best thing you can do for scar tissue is making sure excess doesn't get laid down in the first place. And that just comes with early movement, gentle mobility, and honestly, education on how to move properly after an injury or a surgery. Yeah, I find that so many of my friends, they have surgeries and they're told, don't move, don't do anything, or maybe mm-hmm. just like compress the area and that's it. Yep. And then they have these thick amounts of scar tissue and I'm like, ooh, I don't know. And that just comes down to, I think there's a lot of lack of education around that. One thing when it comes to surgery, as I talk about all the time, and I'm not against surgery. As a physical therapist, people get surgeries for all sorts of reasons. And it's not saying never get surgery. But what we have to understand is surgery is a traumatic experience. At the end of the day, you're being cut open and obviously voluntarily and under anesthesia, but it's still a traumatic experience. So it kicks that body into kind of fight or flight mode, even if you're not conscious of it. So then if you're telling people to be just stationary and not do anything, that causes even more kind of mental health and physical health ramifications. And then there's that lack of education. And yeah, of course, like things can build up or lack of mobility can happen because you don't want to hurt yourself. So you're saying, oh, don't move. I'm not going to move. So it definitely is a complaint of mine with the medical field (laughs) that that is not more, people aren't more educated about that from their doctors or their surgeons. Yes. I always tell my friends whenever they have a surgery, I'm like, you have to massage, you have to move. And even things like um, the silicone tape for the scar, it it has such a big benefit if you use it like quickly. And I didn't know about this when I had like my C-section stuff and I have this huge chunk of scar tissue around it. And like, I can't pinch it with a million pounds. Right. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just remind me of one other thing that I do there sometimes is cupping. I do cupping a lot of times with scar tissues because it's a really gentle way after the scar is healed, obviously, but it's a really gentle way to get mobility in because a lot of times scars are also really sensitive. So it is this kind of fine line between, all right, let's get things moving and let's not torture ourselves. (laughs) Yes. When it comes to something like cellulite or scar tissue. Another question that I get is, 
how hard do you use the tool? And I know you said like, don't like um, clench or if you're like, whatever, but they're saying, is it okay to bruise or like, for example, cupping? Is it okay to like have like all that blood come up to the surface mm-hmm. or are you causing more damage? So my number one rule, and I, I did say this already, but it's worth reiterating, is if you can't breathe, you're doing way too much. And that's whether you're getting a massage from someone else or you're doing it to yourself. If you're holding your breath, you're doing way too much. In general, if you feel any sort of tension elsewhere than the place that you're massaging, you're doing way too much. So when it comes to things like scar tissue, I say the gentler, the better. Certain areas of the body can handle more pressure. I'm thinking kind of like upper back, upper traps, and kind of the bigger muscles. Bigger muscles can often handle more pressure on them. Will you do more damage? You're not going to damage your tissue per se. You're not going to like rip apart your muscles or anything like that. But kind of back to the nervous system, if you're pressing so hard on your body that you're holding your breath and you're clenching it, your body is and nervous system is going to think that you are under attack. So when your body thinks it's under attack, once again, it's going to create more tension. So it's not necessarily that you're going to damage anything. It's just going to be counterproductive. So if you're doing too much, it sends signals to your body that's under attack, which then creates more tension, which was not your point in doing the massage techniques as is. So it just comes down to productivity and honestly just nourishing your body where it is and not torturing our body. I think the no pain, no gain it was and still is very common out there. And don't get me wrong, I used to be totally in that camp. But as I've learned more about my body in my personal experience and my professional experience, no pain, no gain is really not where we need to be. Our bodies need a little bit more love and care and nourishment than anything else. I want to thank Kat so much for allowing me to share with you what I've been using in my practice now for well over a decade. This is Dr. Stephen Cabral. I run one of the largest functional medicine virtual practices in the world. We've helped well over a quarter of a million people to reach their goals, and I would love to be able to share with you what we do as a foundational protocol for those people so that you can achieve those same results as well. We help people get well, lose the weight, or live longer, stronger by beginning with a 7, 14, or 21-day functional medicine detox. This is actually an easy-to-implement protocol that enables then your diet plan or your exercise plan or your healthy living plan to stick. So it's going to get you the results that you're looking for by allowing your body to first rebalance healthy levels of inflammation, rebalance healthy levels of hormones, digestion, and so much more. But I don't want you to take just my word for it. Please do check out now well over 100,000 people and what they've been able to achieve by going to stephencabral.com forward slash cat. And what are your thoughts on, let's say, moving lymphatics around with like dry brushing or gua sha or some people they're doing like the facial yoga? Mm, love it. Love everything about it. There is a, one of my... I want to say mentors, but just honestly, someone that I love learning from is uh, Perry, Dr. Perry Nicholson of Top, Stop Chasing Pain. And one thing he always says is, if you're dealing with chronic pain, chronic health issues, and you don't address the lymphatic system, it's probably just going to come back. Our lymphatic system is such an overlooked part of our health and is so essential to the way our body functions that anything you can do to support it is going to be really helpful. So things like you said, dry brushing. I love it. I do it every single day. It's, I get great enjoyment out of it. I think it feels really good too. Um, facial gasha, facial yoga, gentle massage techniques over the lymph nodes, things like that are all going to be super amazing. There's a lot of ways that you can self-massage your lymphatic system that just encourage more movement and more mobility through the lymphatic system, which is going to have so many great health benefits overall. And I think that when people are going in to see their doctors, it's a system that should be checked more than it is right now. And I try to do that with every person I work with, but it is not everyone knows about it and not everyone understands why it's so important, but it is so important for the optimal functioning of our body on a day-to-day basis. And are there any 
benefits of being in a parasympathetic state. Yes, 100%. So with all of this, even everything that we've talked about today, I've talked a lot about what happens when our body's under threat, and that's that sympathetic state. And with our modern lifestyle, a lot of us are always in a sympathetic state, whether that because of emails or stressors, kids, family, just the world. (laughs) There's so many different reasons for us to be in a sympathetic state. And it's not once again, back to we mentioned in the earlier, stress in itself isn't bad. We need stress to evolve and to learn and to grow. Same thing with a sympathetic state. A sympathetic state serves us. It it helps us tackle stressors. It helps us get ready for a big project. It helps us complete things. But when we're in a sympathetic state for too long, our cortisol levels are go through the roof. It messes with our hormones. It messes with the way our body's functioning. It creates a lot of tension. So we really need the opposite of that, which is a parasympathetic state. And parasympathetic state is often referred to as that rest and digest state, kind of R&R, your heart rate slows down, your digestion increases, your breath rate slows down. And a parasympathetic state is where our body heals itself. So especially for people dealing with any chronic health issues, if you're always in a sympathetic state, you're not giving your body the chance to do the things it naturally does that we don't even think about. You know, the hormones, the muscle repair, the gut repair, the lymphatic system. So in order to fully heal, you need to be able to access a parasympathetic state and you need to be able to move out of your sympathetic state into your parasympathetic state pretty easily in order to really heal and manage your day-to-day health. And what what is the polyvagal theory? Yes. So the polyvagal theory kind of ties all of what we've been talking about together in terms of stress and the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So it's actually a fairly new kind of finding, if you will. Dr. Stephen Porges is the one, I think I want to say he came out with it in the 90s. So in our grand scheme of kind of human health, that's not that long ago. So the polyvagal theory... It says a couple of things, but the really important things for the average person to know is that we used to think that we had just two states, parasympathetic, rest and digest, sympathetic, fight, flight, or freeze, or even just fight or flight for a while. But we actually have a couple more states than that, and that's part of the polyvagal theory. An important part of the polyvagal theory is the vagus nerve. It's often called the wandering nerve. It really is the longest nerve in your body. It connects your gut, your diaphragm, your face, your throat, your ears. It's involved in a lot of what's called the social engagement system, so the way that we interact with the world. So the fact that you could look at me and I'm smiling and you know that that means I'm happy, or if my eyes are closed, you know that I was sleeping, or if you were walking past someone on the street, you'd be able to tell by their facial expressions if they were a threat or not. So our vagus nerves helps control that. You should just think that we had the va- one part of the vagus nerve, that was it. The polyvagal theory found that we have two branches of this vagal nerve. One is called the dorsal vagal branch. It's kind of our older reptilian branch. The other is the ventral vagus. And these help us have what's called hybrid states. So one hybrid state, I think about puppies playing. You know, when puppies play, they're like fighting or even like when like siblings kind of fight a little bit, they're fighting, but they're not trying to like actually attack each other, just play fighting. So puppies is a good example. And in order to be play fighting, you need to have some of this sympathetic nervous system activation, but you also need with this ventral vagal to know that it's playful. So the polyvagal theory is really saying we have these different states where you have these hybrid states, and we really need to be able to access these states, these hybrid states, in order to have our best health. And when our vagus nerve is operating to its highest level is when we're at optimal health. And when we're in that ventral vagal state, that socially engaged state is when our autonomic, our nervous system is really regulating it really well. That doesn't mean we'll never experience stress or we won't be in that sympathetic state. It just means that we can easily move between the states. There, There's a lot to the polyvagal theory and I try not to over talk about it because it can be a little confusing you know, his book is like super thick, but that's kind of the nitty gritty of it. And just really 
recognizing two things that we have more than just two states that we can be in kind of this hybrid of like playfulness. Another hybrid state um, is a state that we need for intimacy. So when you're in kind of close contact with someone, even just hugging someone or laying next to your partner in a bed, you need to be in that parasympathetic kind of rest and digest, but you're also in kind of this um, dorsal vagal state as well. So there's just all these different ways that we have to see that we have almost a greater range than we once thought. And then the other huge thing is the health of the vagus nerve is essential for optimal functioning. It helps control our breathing. It helps control the way our eyes, our nose, our, our voice, how we interact with the world. So in order to really be in the healing process and to feel our best, we need to take care of our vagus nerve. What kinds of things harm our vagus nerve and what kinds of things strengthen or tonify the vagus nerve? I'm going to start with the good stuff, the toning and strengthening, because that's my favorite thing to talk about. So the most beneficial, or I should say, the best way to influence the vagus nerve is through breath work. So using whether it be just different styles of breath work, box breathing, breath of fire, you can stimulate different nervous system states through breath. So anytime you lengthen your exhale, so your exhale is just longer than your inhale, you're going to be activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Anytime you focus more on the inhale, you're going to be activating the sympathetic nervous system. Think about when someone's hyperventilating, it's a lot of inhaling. So that's really sympathetic. On top of that, not only can you manipulate the nervous system through breath work, your vagus nerve passes right through your diaphragm, which sits under your rib cage, which is the muscle that helps you breathe. So when you use your diaphragm to breathe, you're quite literally massaging the vagus nerve itself. And it likes to be massaged. It's good that it's different to be massaged. So breath work is my number one thing. Number two is self-massage techniques. There's a lot of different nerves that branch off the vagus nerve and that are part of this vagal tone. So you can do simple self-massage techniques to tonify and activate the vagus nerve. My go-tos that are super simple that I can explain even via audio. One is, have you ever gotten a massage or gotten your hair cut and they massage your head and it feels like the most magical experience? Yes, do more of that. That is activating your vagus nerve and it's probably the easiest way. So I, when I teach a yoga class, sometimes I'll have people end their class with running their fingers through their hair and giving their scalp a massage and even gently pulling their hair at the roots to stimulate um, one of the nerves there. You can also do gentle massage to your face. So that's facial gua sha is great for the lymphatic system, but it's also really good for your vagus nerve. So gentle massaging to the face can be really helpful. Gentle massaging to the front of your neck. There's this point called herbs point. There's a couple other really specific points on your face, kind of near your eyebrow, near your chin that really are direct access to the vagus nerve. I have a couple of those on my YouTube channel, but the trigeminal nerve is one that you can massage. So I use a lot of self-massage techniques with people because they're also simple things you can do on your own at home. Other things that are great for the vagus nerve are chanting or humming or singing, anything that vibrates the, the um, throat and the vocal box, as well as, I know it's kind of, I feel like it's all the rage right now, but there is some good research on it, cold showers or cold exposure, primarily actually on your face, even just splashing cold water on your face can really activate the vagus nerve. It's called the diving reflex. Um, there is one other thing I wanted to mention, and it's escaping my mind. Healthy connection as well. Connecting well with other people. Having this healthy connection between people where you can feel safe and heard, and even just being able to look at someone and smile at them. Healthy connection is really important for the health of the vagus nerve. And it goes back to that social engagement system because the vagus nerve does control how we see and interact with the world. I'm sure there's others that I'm missing, but those are kind of my go-tos that I use on a daily basis. I heard that gargling helps the vagus nerve. I don't know if yes. that's true. Yes. No, it is true. It is true because anything that has to do with the throat, um, so it's similar similar mechanism to humming or singing. Gargling is, is really great for the, the vagus nerve. 
I don't do mouthwash anymore, so maybe I should just gargle for no reason. <laughs> gargle some water, yeah. Some some regular water works for sure. And let's talk about grounding. What is grounding and what are the benefits? Grounding is probably my favorite wellness technique that I use. I'll be honest, I haven't done it lately because I'm in Boston and there's some snow on the ground. But grounding involves getting your bare feet on some form of the earth, whether that be grass or sand. I have a garden, so I'll stick my feet in the quite little dirt. Even rocks can be really helpful. I'm partial to grass and dirt just personally, but it's helpful for two, actually three or four different reasons. But one main reason I love grounding, there are different things that are transferred from our feet to the earth. There's this kind of exchange of electrons when we get our feet in the dirt. And part of it, what it does is it grounds us from a nervous system stance. It helps us feel really rooted and solid in our foundation. And there's a lot of good research showing how it affects the nervous system and it's able to activate more of that parasympathetic nervous system state. I use it personally as a vagus nerve hack. Technically, it's not directly influencing the vagus nerve, but it has that overall influence on the parasympathetic nervous system. It's also a great just mindful te- mindfulness technique of getting your feet in the dirt, being aware of the texture on the bottom of your feet, being aware of what you're doing, and just being present in the sensations of the moment third kind of piece to that, which I like to add in as a physical therapist is our feet are so important for the overall health of our physical body. And they are often neglected and thrown in shoes and kind of really tight shoes. The best thing you can do for the health of your feet is not supportive shoes. It is getting your feet moving. And my favorite way is to walk on the earth on uneven surfaces. You have 20, I think it's 26 bones in your feet. And they need to move. They love to move. So walking barefoot on grass is one of my favorite ways to really nurture the mobility of the feet of the fascia, back to fascia of the fascia on the bottom of your feet, as well as get those extra grounding effects from nature herself. So it's one of those techniques that you get so much bang for your buck. And I find it enjoyable, maybe not in the snow, but normally I find it really enjoyable And it clicks a lot of boxes when it comes down to creating a sustainable, healthy, really efficient and effective wellness ritual. That reminds me of being a child and running around in the backyard with no shoes on and you like maneuver so you don't hit like the sharp rocks or whatever and you can get really, really good at that. And it is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But I have to ask this one question because I know it comes up a lot. What about parasites when it comes to grounding? Is there any way to practice it while still protecting yourself from parasites? That's a great question. And I personally have been doing more research on that in recent years. I definitely have been grounding more and I realize the role of parasites. For me, I'm really lucky. I have a garden where I really take care of it and very aware of what's in the soil. So that's really my kind of go-to. In general, I think it depends on the person because I also think a lot more pe- – some people have a bit more susceptibility to parasites and parasite kind of effects and other people don't. But at the end of the day, my gut is take care of your vagus nerve and your body can do a better job at taking care of any any threat that comes to it. So if you can take care of your vagus nerve and get the good effects of grounding, then it can help in fighting off parasites. I do think there needs to be a little bit more research on kind of that effect because the parasites do have an effect on the vagus nerve. So it is this kind of, this kind of back and forth of risk reward. And it it does, I think is going to come down to the person and the place as well. You know, I live in a city, so I really do it in my garden and that's it. I don't really, even like I have grass on the side of my house in the city. I don't go there. I'll, but I will go in my garden because I kind of, I know what's going on in there. So I think it depends a lot. And what are some of the benefits of spending time outdoors and how long is the minimum we should be outdoors per day or per week? I think the benefits for being outdoors are just exponential. And maybe that's 
I think that because so much of our time is spent indoors, but there is a lot of really great research on what it can do for our create. It can improve creativity. It can improve our focus. It can help regulate the nervous system. It can help us create more mindfulness in our just daily lives. Sunshine and vitamin D plays a huge role when we talk about mother nature. And there's so many layers to it. There's what you're physically getting, right? The sunshine, the vitamin D, the grounding. They're what you're kind of emotionally getting or spirit, emotionally and spiritually getting. You're connecting to something outside yourself. You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I talk to my flowers all the time. It's a very spiritual practice for me. Um, and then you're also getting the mental benefits of creating a, a mindfulness experience, creating a way to drop into your body, to check in with your five senses, I think one of my favorite practices in mother nature is being in mother nature and connecting to my five senses because you just get so much out of it. You notice so much about the world around you. You smell, you feel, you hear, you see all this vibrant colors, even in the winter time. So for me, when I'm dealing with someone one-on-one, especially with chronic health, chronic uh, pain, getting outdoors is kind of a a non-negotiable. And that doesn't mean, you know, going for three hour hikes. That can be just taking your coffee and watching the birds flip by in the morning. It's once again, a little bit goes a long way here. There are so there is, I should say some research that shows certain, you know, minimums and maximums. And a lot of that research is actually interestingly being done in kind of Japan and Korea at the moment with a lot of forest bathing, which is really cool. But it really comes down to consistency, doing it over the course of time and not just going for a long, like six hour days, a little bit over the course of your days can be really helpful. So I usually try to say 20 minutes a day outdoors to all of my clients, but it doesn't need to be 20 minutes straight, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, maybe five, five and whatever it is, whatever works. But 20 minutes a day is kind of the minimum that I recommend to people. And then anything on top of that is just an added bonus. And I will add, because this is a common question, like, can you max out on those benefits, right? Like, is there too much? No. I think 20 minutes a day is where you start. Anything after that is just going to build off it and you're going to have cumulative effects and, and, and more and more effects to the mindfulness, body awareness, emotional, spiritual, all those benefits are just going to keep compounding on each other as you spend more time outdoors. And what are some ways that you can honor the change of seasons? This is something that I think is often overlooked in our modern society as well. Food is a big one. Really paying attention to what you're eating and is it in season? And I'll be honest, this is the hardest one for most people, myself included. And I didn't realize how much I was eating out of season until I started growing my own food. I don't only grow my own food. We have a small garden, but I started to see when things bloomed and when things came to fruit. And that taught me a lot. So just honoring the different foods of the seasons. And I know everyone jokes, you know, in the fall, like pumpkin spice, but really pumpkins and squash in the fall are really good for your body, really nurturing. You know, you want more warming things in the winter, soups and warm beverages and kind of heavier foods in the wintertime, comfort foods, more carbs in the winter are actually going to be good. And then in the spring and summer, you need lighter foods, more fruits, more salads, more um, spices, things like that. And in the winter, you want more heating spices, where in the summer you want more cooling spices. So it's all about kind of eating what's in season as well as really nourishing where you are. In the wintertime, you want to hibernate a little bit. You want to give yourself more time to rest. You want to give yourself more time to sleep. In the summertime, you're probably going to naturally feel more social. You want to be able to embrace that. Get yourself outdoors a little bit more. Maybe be a little bit more social. Not to the point that you're burning yourself out, but embrace that energy. Spend, you might be up a little bit later in the summertime because the sun is naturally out later or out later. The sun is naturally up later. So different lifestyle ways, adjusting maybe your work schedule. In the wintertime, maybe you close the computer down a little bit earlier so you can get to bed earlier. When you're in the summertime, maybe you work a little bit later because the sun's out a little bit later. And then I mentioned food already. And then another huge thing is just 
sinking yourself to the sun itself within the season. So one of the most powerful things you can do is get 10 minutes of sunshine on your face first thing in the morning. Because not only is that great vitamin D, but it also sinks your circadian rhythm to the season that you're with, that you're in. So when you can get sun on your skin first thing in the morning, you're really embracing the season that you're in and you're really embracing like, okay, the sun's up now. This is where I'm getting it. And then it helps you have better melatonin production for sleep and helps you have more alertness during the day. So I have a lot of friends that get mad when I say this, but we're in Miami. There's not that much vegetables that grow mm-hmm. here. And if they are, it's maybe a couple weeks out of the year that we can get vegetables. So I don't eat many vegetables and they get so mad. I eat more fruits because it's really hot here all the time. Mm -hmm. So I have more fruits and just other things and not so much warming stuff like that. So is that a good technique or should I still incorporate vegetables even if they don't grow where I'm currently located? That's a great question because obviously everyone experiences seasons differently depending on their life. And even just listening to the way I talk, it was very, I live in the Northeast. So it's a very different seasonal experience. So I think it, when you're in a space, I'm going to use Miami as an example, just because that's where you are. When you're in a space where there's generally sunshine throughout the year, there's different ways of growing. I think it is super important to embrace the local food first and foremost, for many different reasons ranging from just embracing small farmers to embracing naturally where you're living. So I think your method of eating fruit is really powerful. With that said, I think even in a place like Miami, there are small seasonal shifts. So embracing those in different ways. So it might mean instead of, you know, warming soups, you're having more warm tea in the morning, something like that. So embracing it in small ways, maybe not in the big ways that people do in the Northeast, but embracing it in your own small ways, even just adjusting the lifestyle. But when it comes to food, I always go with the local grown first because A, it's easier to, it's better on our, for our environment and it's easier to get, but it's also what's locally grown is going to nurture where you are because you are getting more sunshine. You are warm. If you were to have butternut squash soup when it's 80 degrees out, that's not really the same as having butternut squash soup when there's snow on the ground. (laughs) Yes. And we have like, um, I always wanted maybe a traditional English garden because that's what I grew up watching on TV. And I'm just like, why can't we grow any of these things here? But I'm, now that I'm older, I'm thinking maybe those things would not be beneficial to me. Maybe I should embrace that we have a mango season, that we have a, you know, mame or papaya or all these other fruits and stuff that I just go, oh, these are unhealthy because they're fruits when I was younger. So maybe they are good for us. Right. And like you mentioned, all those things have their own season, right? There's different times when the mangoes are in season versus the papayas in season. So part of it too is just recognizing that most fruits or vegetables aren't in season all the time. So knowing, okay, when are mangoes in season let me really get into mangoes <laughs> during that time. And it does get a little repetitive and a little boring. Our, our joke in our house is August is like tomato season in the Northeast. And by the end of August, we're like, if I never see a tomato again in my life. So it does, you have to be creative. But I I do think it is, okay, when is this fruit or vegetable in season? And that's the best time to eat it. Not saying never have a mango out of season. Believe me, I just had a banana this morning and they're definitely not growing in Boston. But, you know, there's a give and take there. So embracing when mango season is and really loving it and then embracing the next season that comes and really making that kind of the main, the star, if you will, (laughs) of your week. (laughs) And what are some other ways that maybe you can incorporate Mother Nature into your healing when you live in a big city? Definitely. I live in the heart of Boston right now, and I I struggle with this, and I work through this on a daily basis. For me, it does. Re- I do require. I require like a house plant requires water, but I require daily walks of some sort. In the winter time, I keep it short, ten to fifteen minutes. But even just walking through my neighborhood, people have small gardens, people have flowers. It's just a really great way for me to connect when most of the world around me is concrete. Other simple things is I bring the outdoors indoors. I love houseplants. I think that's a really great way to 
start to bring the outdoors indoors, especially, you know, I am lucky I do have a little backyard space, but for people who don't, bringing plants and flowers indoors can be really powerful practice as well. Talking to them, touching them, getting that sensory experience, smelling the flowers, all that stuff's really good. I do also think in a city, you know, back to food a little bit is farmers markets or local farms really checking in and buying from them because that's just an easy way to connect to mother nature through eating. And then on top of that, you do really have to make an effort sometimes in the city, whether, you know, that is going, you know, there is a park down the block that I can go to, but it takes me a little bit extra time to get there. Or, you know, my, my little sister lives in New York city, but central parks right there. So she tries to get there maybe not every day, but she tries to go once a week to central park. So I do think in the city, you have to get creative and you have to find little local spaces that really fuel you. For me, it's my backyard. I have a little garden. It's not big, but it, it really does the trick. For my sister at Central Park, when I lived elsewhere, it was finding walking past my neighbor who had this big, beautiful garden all the time. So I do think there is a sense of creativity, but then also having your non-negotiables, which for me is walking. For some people, that is just one of my clients, his non-negotiable for Mother Nature is having his coffee outdoors. He has a front stoop. He takes his coffee outdoors and he sits for 10 minutes and just feels the sunshine on his face and drinks his coffee. And that is his non-negotiable, how he's getting mother nature into his day to day. Cause at minimum he has that. If he gets out for a walk, if he does other things, great. If not, he's got his 10 minutes with his coffee and his sunshine. And that goes a really long way. Yeah, that is definitely something that I remember embracing at the start of the pandemic. So they're like, you have to get your vitamin D. So I'm like, okay, yes. we have a timer. We have to go out for 20 minutes and just like sit over there, talk out there, have breakfast out there, whatever it is, have a dessert mm -hmm. out there just to be outside. And then over the course of the years, it's kind of tapered back down to nothing. So we need to restart it again. But it is an important reminder that it's it's right there and it really calms you down as well as getting yes. your vitamin D. A hundred percent. And one thing I didn't mention in terms of city living and I'm, I, I'm hesitant to mention this because it does depend on the city, but I'm also a big fan of opening the windows as often as I can in the summertime or the springtime, you know, if it's not too hot, obviously. Um, but opening the windows and getting fresh air kind of moving through your home is also really powerful. I recognize that in some cities, it's just too loud and too hot and too full of pollution. But if you are in a smaller city and you can open your windows, that's another huge thing because even just feeling the breeze and smelling maybe the, especially in springtime when everything's in bloom, smelling the flowers and the blooms on the air, is just magical. Yeah. And I do know, cause I'm in a big city and I'm right by highways and stuff like that. So it's very sooty around where I live. Mm -hmm. But I know on the weekends or at nights, yes. there's less cars. So that's when I open my windows just to get a little bit of circulation. Yep. And, and it's just being creative. You're like, I know that night times are uh, – same for us. Night times are the best time to have it open because there's much less cars going by. And you really can get that calm sense as well as the good feel of just having nature entering the home. So how can everyone learn more about you and how can everyone work with you? Thank you so much for asking. So my name is Carrie McGinn. I am a physical therapist and yoga instructor, and I own a company, Live Good Feel Good. So on Instagram, I am at livegood underscore feelgood underscore. And that's probably the best place to find me. The next best place is probably my website, kerrymegan.com. K-E-R-R-Y, it'll be in the show notes, but M-C-G-I-N-N.com. Everything is up there. I have a blog. I have a lot of my resources. Currently right now, I am working one-on-one -on -one with people online and in person. For physical therapy, it is Massachusetts-based only, but for some of my other stress coaching and health coaching stuff, that is wherever you are. And the other big thing that I do is I run a group, I call it a group healing program. It's called Nourish Your Nervous System. And honestly, a lot of what we chatted about today, we talk about there on a deeper level and a personal level. So we talk about the vagus nerve. We talk about the polyvagal theory, the lymphatic system, the fascia system, mother nature, cycles and seasons, meditation, mindfulness, breathwork, a lot of what we went through today. And that is a six-month group coaching program that I run twice a year in January and in September. So that's a kind of group option to work with me or one-on-one. -on -one. 
Awesome. So I will put all those things in the show notes, of course. And is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we go? I think my number one piece of advice, well, it's it's twofold. It's show up for yourself as best you can, but understand that a little bit goes a long way. And I know I said that already today, but I think, you know, we talked about a lot today and all your podcasts I know are jam-packed with tons of wonderful information and it can feel overwhelming sometimes. Start with one thing you heard today or on any any podcast let's do. Start with one thing, start with a small thing and it's going to not only have so many benefits for your life, but also encourage you to try another new thing and to keep taking the next step towards your health and healing journey. Well, thank you so much for everything today, Carrie, and have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. I had an episode a while back with Dr. Mona Fahum of Feminescence, and we spoke about Feminescence, Maca Harmony, and their Maca products. And if you're a woman who's ever had hormonal imbalances, if you're trying to come off the birth control pill, or even if you're going through menopause, this is a natural way to help ease that transition and to help balance your hormones. There's nothing quite like it, so go to Feminescence.com, enter code CAT15, K-A-T-1-5, for 15% off any of their single pack products, and definitely go check out the episode. Just search for Mona Fahum on my podcast and listen. You won't regret it. Thank you for listening to the show. Please show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star review. Learn more about the show and what I have to offer you at katkatibi.com. Consider being a part of the new Patreon, where episodes are ad-free and you'll find extra bonus contents. Send a voicemail question or email me. Check the show notes for more information. This podcast is for informational, merrymaking, and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.